0: sailors, David Blacklock here with the Smarter Charter Bear Boat Shop. Today we're talking with Tim Schaaf. Tim is a longtime icon of Caribbean charter business based in the British Virgin Islands where he's operated his own Leopard 45 catamaran jet stream for 15 years or more and he's been a big part of the professional organization of the Charter Yacht Society there and a big help to all who've known him uh, he's about ready to depart from the British Virgin Islands and he's heading off on new adventures. So we're going to catch up with him today and find out all about his attitudes about catamaran. He's a real booster of the catamaran. He knows how to sail it. you often seen short tacking up narrow channels. Sailing on and off moorings and doing all sorts of tricks with a cat that most people would never even imagine attempting. If you think you hear some birds tweeting outside the window, you're not mistaken. We're in Australia and there's a bunch of birds flying around making all sorts of lovely noises. So enjoy those while you can. So we started out by asking... TubeShot, thanks for joining us. Your expertise on a catamaran, I think, would be a very interesting subject of conversation. You know, I've seen you... Short tacking. I've seen you sail up to a mooring, you know, and all those sort of things that you know most people would happily do on a on a monohull, but are somewhat reluctant to do on a cat because at low boat speed they're not so easy to control. A and B. um, It's not a skill that is taught very often to uh, newbie sailors. And I know when I've been teaching catamaran courses, the the default is crank up the engines and away we go and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, Because you do have incredible uh, mobility with twin engines and, and, uh, you know, so widely spaced and so forth. But um, I'd love to, you know, get into a conversation about that with you if you are up for that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to answer your question by asking you a couple of questions. Okay. All right. You said that, that, that doing this stuff was something you would do on a monohull, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but that you wouldn't do it on a cat. Why not?
0: Uh, well, I, I have done on a cat, but it's not something that um, uh, I've ever taught, you know, because mostly the all the books would say... Because of its small rudders and um, difficulty sailing close to the wind, the cat is not highly maneuverable under sail at low speed. And I would, as a matter of caution, would would try and um, get my crew to, uh, you know, operate the boat as a, uh, under power. You know, because presumably you're always going to have at least one working engine. It's much more likely on a on a mono to, uh, you know, if you lose it, mechanical power, you get a wrap around your prop or something like that, then you're going to have to sail up. But you don't, the, the, the circumstances in where you're obliged to sail a cat onto a mooring or onto the dock or something uh, seem less uh, likely than uh, on a mono.
1: Okay, let me address that. Okay. Uh, and let me start by saying that I find Jetstream to be an enormously maneuverable cat. Jetstream is a Leopard 45. Uh, that's, she was the first uh, design that Robertson and Kane came out with in the late 90s. Jetstream is a 1999. Mm-hmm. She is a... she. Um, when a boat is designed... There are some general criteria that are used. In the case of Jetstream, she was designed uh, to be a charter boat, to be a load carrier. And as a result of being a load carrier, uh, the way that they designed it so that she could move was to give her an enormous sail area. Other boats will go at it from the point of view of preferring to have smaller sails, maybe easier handled sails, sails, and lighter weight, uh, which stands you in very good stead until you weigh it down. And then you have a dog. Uh, In the case of of Jetstream, she has sail power so that she can move. And I feel that uh, the sails, of course, do not only provide you with motive force, but they also provide you with steering. uh, She has big sails. So uh, what I say is almost certainly not true of all cats and I think I told you I'm about to get a smaller cat, and uh, giving up, or maybe I haven't, but
0: anyway,
1: giving up up Jetstream is going to be a a, a traumatic thing, because not only does she sail well, but I know how she sails, and I'm very eager to see if the small cat, which has a reputation as being a good sailor, does, it may take a little while to figure out its nuances. Now, I think that the reason people don't do these maneuvers, and that's why I asked you not to do these maneuvers, is that there's a very common feeling that these boats can't do these maneuvers. And so, therefore, they kind of get uh, overlooked. As you said, you've got the engines, turn on the engines and and do it. Um, And and, uh, one more chapter in the saga of they can't do it is written. Um, mm-hmm. I tell my students that a lot of the stuff we do, because we, uh, I mean, you you say you've seen us come through the, the gap at the Mosquito Island, but have you seen us go through the gap between Bitter End and Sabah upwind? <laughs> that's that's kind of yeah. the final exam. We do that all the time, and that's much tougher.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, uh, and it, it, I always tell them. Because you really here,
0: only have, you, you have like two boat lengths of, of, of reasonable depth to play with there, if, if that, right?
1: Oh, probably three,
0: okay. three and a half. All right. Not
1: much. Oftentimes we do the tack and we don't have the one sheet uh, completely winched in and we're doing another tack. Right. Um, and uh, But there's a secret to that, and I'll come to that in a second. Uh, but anyway, I always say to them, we're not, what we're not doing here is hot dogging. Uh, We're doing two things. We're teaching you how, we're teaching you that this can be done. And you may never do this on your own, but I want you to see that the borders of what can be done on a cat are far, far wider than you probably think. And if you find it fun, I'm showing you how to do this. It doesn't take much practice. That's number one. Number two, we are showing everybody around us what can be done. And my hope is that at least a few boats look at that and say, I want to learn that. And in doing that, we can perhaps shatter some of the myths about catamarans being bad sailors. Because they're not bad sailors. A lot of times the people on them are, but the boats aren't. Now, uh, in my case, early on, I probably used the engines as much as anybody. But I'm very fortunate in that, of course, uh, I own Jetstream. Um, And therefore, there's nobody there to tell me, don't do this or don't do that. It's too risky or whatever. I don't think it is risky Mm -hmm. Uh, and all the time. I've had the opportunity to really play with the boat. And I think what often happens is, is that the students are too reluctant to play with the boat and the instructors don't have the opportunities to play with the boat. Um, And therefore, they're going to teach what they're comfortable and that's going to be much more down the line of what the book says. Um, and much more inclined. I mean, I, I I experiment. I'm always working on how can I make it do this? How can I make it do that? I mean, just recently, the the uh, the last thing that I've been trying to do, I have not mastered it yet. But this seems to me like this would be a fun thing to be able to do. Don't know if it ever would be useful, but it would be to sail into an anchorage, and then heave to onto the mooring. Okay. So you get the turn just right, and then the, the mooring ball kind of goes along the crossbeam. If you kind of get my my, my drift, right? And uh, that might be useful if you came into a uh, an anchorage under just jib, for example,
2: right? Uh,
1: so so I'm always trying to work these things out. And my reaction is the boats will do way more than people will tell them they'll do, and people need to get out and do it, and uh, and then they'll learn,
2: right? And they'll be
1: now. Uh, in the course of my instruction, in the first couple days, we spend a good bit of time talking about how the sails work, and talking about how apparent wind works. Um, one of the very important things I try to, to uh, get people to understand is that if you're going in a constant direction and the wind changes in velocity, it isn't just the velocity that changes, but also the apparent wind direction.
0: Sure, yeah.
1: A lot of when people are saying, oh, well, the wind was fluky, it was you know, it was shifting around. It wasn't shifting direction, but it was shifting speed. And as it shifted its speed, it was shifting the apparent wind direction. So right. I try to get students to be aware of the wind, look at where, what the wind is going to do. You know, if you're sailing behind a, a mountain, well, you can imagine that the east end of North Sound around Bitter End, The wind is doing all kinds of things, right? So we're trying to anticipate how it's going to change direction as much as how it's going to change speed and to really get the the people understanding how the wind works. Now, within probably the second day, we're sailing off of a mooring. And sailing off of a mooring, of course, we can do that many ways. We can do it just with the mooring. We can do it in a number of ways. Um, But typically, I'll do it by backwinding the jib. And that's a very good exercise because... The sequence of, uh, I mean, for example, do you let the last mooring uh, go before you let out the jib and back it, or do you back the jib and then let the mooring go? I mean, it, it, I get everybody really thinking about the sequence. You know, they'll I'll say, okay, we're going to do this. Tell me how we're going to do this. Oh, well, we'll just back the wind and go. I'll say, really? Give me the sequence. One, two, three, four. We spend a lot of time on that. Mm-hmm. So, that begin to understand how the wind affects the boat. And and when we start doing that we realise that when we tack, for example, and the wind is very light, that might be an occasion that we backwind the boat if uh, to, to make the tack. If we're going fast, we don't need to do that. Jetstream doesn't really need to do that ever. But let's say we stall the boat and we therefore have no steerage way, we can still steer by using the jib. Right. So so very early on I try to get people doing that. And I don't see a whole lot of I don't want to make comparisons, but I don't see that a lot with other courses. And I have a feeling that that most instructors spend uh, a lot of time on the very basic stuff, which is very important because you need to do the basics. But I wonder how often the student leaves feeling that they really know what the wind did. Mm. Uh, so so that's, that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is... Is that I think in all the close quarter maneuvering with the catamaran, the secret is learning to sail with just the main. And the reason I say that is, is that, I mean, many of us grew up on jib-driven boats, masthead rigs with a huge jib bigger than the bigger than the main. That certainly is what I sailed for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Kind of scoffed at the big main. Um, um, but those kind of boats won't sail with just the main. You know, the main is too small, it's a sliver, um, center reference in the wrong place. Uh, and so when you're sailing along sail on one a, sail on a boat like that, you're usually doing it with the jib. And we see that all the time. People unroll the jib and off they go. problem with that is that if you're coming up to pick a morning or anything like that, pick up a morning. You've got that sail up there flapping around trying to kill you when you come head to wind unless you roll it up, at which point you have no engine. Hmm. I've come to truly like sailing with a fractional rig and a big main because that you can control And, uh, um, and you can slow down. So, for example, when somebody asks me, can I sail up through Mosquito on my own? Because I always try to get people thinking in terms of what would they do single-handed, because that requires that they think things through better. You know, if you've got a big crew, uh, muscle power can get you through all kinds of mistakes. But if you're by yourself, you have to think it through. And people will say, "How do you do that by yourself?" I'll say, "It's very easy." Well, what do I do? I roll up the jib. I don't try to single-hand through mosquito tacking the jib and tacking the main. I just roll up the jib and go in with the main self-tacking. Couldn't be, couldn't be easier, except. Instead of going at, you know, seven knots, eight knots, I'm going at five. Mm. Uh, and so the first thing is to understand that if, you, if you're if you comfortable with sailing with just the main, that becomes a very big weapon. And where I think most people go wrong, I went wrong with this for years with Jetstream. I couldn't make her sail with the main. I could make her stall. Eventually, I got to the point where I can make her sail sideways if I want mm. or go and the whole key there is to simply remember to ease the main. We sometimes lose sight of the fact that the jib changes the angle of the wind for the main. So the main sails in the dirty air of the jib and has to be has to be uh, sheeted in more closely. The minute you get rid of the jib, you need to let the main out. How far? Quite far. Think of the angle of the leading edge of the jib. Mm-hmm. Per for a second you're probably as close to the wind you're going to be maybe you know in the high 30s apparent wind right you might mm-hmm. be four some boats before that and that's kind of the angle that the leading edge of the jib is and that's where the main has to be so on jet stream for example when i might have it sheeted in really tightly uh if i'm sailing with both sails i'll immediately let it out maybe i'm talking about the boom might be um certainly three it might be five feet off center line which is quite a bit and all of a sudden the boat sails. So the first thing that a person needs to do is to understand that sailing with the the main out makes the main trim correctly. Not like you're walking the main, it's how the main's gonna sail with the most power. Um, a jet stream will sail almost as close to the wind with just the main as she does with full sail, except the main has to be out. And all of a sudden okay. the boat isn't Manoeuvrable. Okay. I can turn her on a dime. If I sheet in too much, she'll come to a dead halt. She'll stall uh, She'll come head to wind. So the first thing is to learn where that sail needs to be and if, and if you're trying to do a lot of close action It's a little better even if you've got both sails to have the main out. Remember the old phrase when in doubt let it out. Mm. And I think that's the uh, That's the main thing the second part of it is, is that in a boat that sails more closely to the wind? Let's think of our typical monohull. If you sit on a mooring or an anchor with your mainsail up, mm-hmm. unless you have it completely luffing, it's very easy for the boat to start sailing.
2: Mm.
1: It wants to sail. You know, the bow falls off the wind, and off you go with with the uh, with the sail. With the catamaran, because it's not quite so close-winded, you have a nice little notch in there where the mainsail acts like the feathers of an arrow. And if you have it sheeted in tightly enough, it will never turn away far enough from the wind to start sailing. So it just keeps you stalled.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so of well, the close-quarter maneuvering, one of the things that we do sometimes is we stall the mainsail. And in fact, we pick up the main, pick up the mooring or drop the mooring with the main up in a completely stalled position so that it isn't making us sail around. And Then when we get ready to go, then we let it out a little bit. When we finally pick up the mooring, that's when the sail comes down, not until the mooring's picked up. So if we miss the mooring, the boat will gradually back up. The bow will, will gradually pay out one side or the other. We ease the main out until all of a sudden the boat stops and it starts picking up speed, we go and we make another shot at it. But if we were to lower the main as we were coming up on the mooring, let's say at the end, and we flew the pickup, we're now without it. So I would say that post quarter maneuvering starts with, first of all, understanding that it can be done and therefore playing with the boat to find out how that boat wants to do it. Right. rather than on the theory that it's a big, heavy, unmaneuverable beast and we best just turn on the engines. The first thing. The second thing is learning how to sail under main alone, assuming that the boat has the right, you know, sail plan for it. And and my observation is that the big mistake that people make when they, when they are sailing uh, with the main alone is to not let the main out mm. and to not how far they need to let it out. And then finally, the great advantage of the catamaran is you have the ability to, to actually stall the boat with the main if you want to do it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to th- one last little story about that ease of the main. You know, I, I don't think I'm saying anything that an experienced sailor doesn't know whether or not they actually do it or not is something else. But I remember. Uh, I remember back in one of the America's Cup, San Diego, where I lived at the time. There was the women's Do you remember that? Uh, that was uh, financed by. He's um, actually the sort of the unknown Coke of the Koch brothers. Politically, he's very opposite to the other fellows. But um, yeah. and and Dennis Connor was, the, uh, you know, he had a team in there. Dennis Connor's vote was not that good, but his team was, as it always is, very good. And uh, it wound up in the finals against. Um, the women, and they were down to the seventh race for who got to defend. And so you had, on the one hand, the team of the Jack sailors, and then you had the team with the better boat. Also, the women were Crackerjack sailors too. Don't let me imply that that was not the case. But they didn't have the experience, Connors boat did. And they had the better boat. And it was a very close race. At that point, Connors was not, not sailing. He was not the helm. I think Kenny Reed probably was. He's had you know, for a number of years, he, he, he gave up the helm, but he was in the afterguard. And um, this is one of the first races where they were all microphones, so you could hear all the conversation. It was very good. A lot of people had a misimpression of Dennis Connors. He was actually very quiet in the boat. And um, they were sailing along, and all of a sudden, the halyard of Connors' boat, uh, Stars and Stripes, on the jib, let go or broke or whatever, and down came the jib. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a very good race. And, of course, they had it all, you know, they're all trained and set up to where they have a spare halyard. And, you know, they, they, they got the thing all, all sorted out and seemed like seconds. Um, probably took a minute. Uh, but that's a big deal in a race like that. And as the jib came down and everybody started, you could hear Connor in his distinctive voice just quietly say to the crew, he's the main. And I'll never forget that. In that level of a race, that level of sailors, somebody still had to remind them to ease the main.
2: Mm. And
1: uh, they did go on to win the race. And then, in one of the great things in sailing, the women offered Connors the use of their boat in the actual final and the actual cup itself. And Connors accepted it, um, which goes to show how much better a boat uh, the other boats had. Anyway, that, those are some 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 little uh, things, and I've been. Yeah, kid, you probably have a question or two.
0: Was that Dawn Riley? Was that was that her team? It was. Going back to the, um, you know, talking about sailing the cat under main. One of the issues that a lot of people have is, particularly like, like when they're hoisting the the main when they're getting a sail up. They're motoring often, and there's a big problem with weather helm. With the main up, the jib still still rolled up. You put a little trim on the on the main, the next thing you know, you know, you're just rounding up completely massive weather helm on some of the boats. And that sometimes you'll hear, uh, particularly in a charter type situation, people are out there, they're getting their main up, and you start to hear the incredible revving of of the of the engine, where they're either putting the, the leeward engine in reverse or the, the windward engine forward, and trying to spin the boat back so that it's not going, uh, you know, head to wind. And that's uh, always been an issue for um, newbie sailors. I know in situations when I've been, you know, like an instructional skipper or or going out with um, people on their first sail on a on, you know on a charter. And, you know, you spend a few, like an hour or two with them. That's always the issue, is the weather helm under main alone.
1: And that's because it's in too tight. I mean, I Let's used to do that, too, until I figured it out, you know. And Jetstream is fingertip steering uh, under main alone. Yeah. Um, remember, she's got a – it's a fractional rig. The mass is pretty far forward. The center of effort is not so far back, right? right. Um, the, the, the old mass rig, uh, the main was – generally further back and uh, and you had that but but um, I remember when I first would say oh this is one I wasn't really trying to you know and I wasn't doing much teaching and and it was kind of how do you get the charter done and uh, yeah it, it, she had tremendous weather helm and uh, like I say I could make her go sideways all those sorts of things I, you know I would read things and I think well these cats can't go under Maine alone I just read it and I just did it and then when I started experimenting with it, then I started easing the main the whole way over out, and that's just it's like a, a, a big dinghy. Um, and, and I think that's a secret. People just don't realize how far out that main has to be. Let's say you're sailing along at about 40 degrees, 42 degrees apparent wind, right? That means yep. the true wind is about 60 degrees. Yeah. And uh, um, and that's going to be. Where a lot of these cats are going to be comfortable sailing. Anyway, forty degrees or so apparent wind. Think how far the boom has to be out for that to be correctly trimmed. If you don't have a jib. Yeah. And people just don't do that. And when I started, you know, kind of kicking myself and thinking, Tim, you've known this for twenty years. Why don't you just assume this boat can can sail under main alone uh, and figure
0: it out? Now, do you find that you are somewhat unique in in this? Approach. I mean, there's not many sailors that that do the things that you that I've seen you do. But I mean, you do them because you often would have students on board and you'd be teaching or or getting them to practice it. Yeah. But um, you know, so so much of catamaran operation has really been about sort of uh, like it's a it's a motor yacht with an auxiliary sail or something. You know.
1: As Trish used to say, it's a cruise around the dinner table, not around the islands. Exactly. And I uh, I always loved that phrase of hers. It was so so apt. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess it's different. I mean, you know, we're all teaching mm. the same thing, basically if we're teaching to a uh, to a standard. But um, uh, I love to sail. I love the students to sail, and. My clientele is very heavily weighted in favor of the older couple who are actually going to buy a cat for their retirement or to cruise or whatever. They don't have to be older, but they're going to be serious. They're going to be live aboard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, not that many of my uh, 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 clientele seems to be people that are learning to sail a cat so that they can charter. Right, Some do. Right. But more are gonna yeah. of them are going to buy a boat. And, uh, and it's very easy to talk them into wanting to know how to do this. Um, and there probably is a little bit more theoretical stuff than average. I, it, sometimes I I, I want to get out on the water and I'm having to go through this. As I explain to them, I want you to understand why we're going to what we're going to do, so that when we actually do it, you can see it and you don't have to be thinking at the time why we do that. So um, try and get them to really understand what's going on. Uh, and then, and then, you know, really make them do it, and they have a tremendous time. I mean, they enjoy it so much, David, because because they're understanding it, you know. And I'll make them at the end of a maneuver. Okay, explain that to me. Did we do it well? Did we not do it well? Why did we not do it well? And right. you know, and I require the kinds of answers. And and uh, uh, yeah, and then if it's if it's. Uh, if it's not an instructional thing, you know, if it's a regular charter, I mean, usually there's a couple people that are interested in learning how to sail. So uh, I'll, I'll get them to some point where at least they can help out with some of these maneuvers. And, you know, and they all kind of they notice that we're doing stuff that none of the other boats are noticing. And they kind of they get a kick out of it. Uh, like yeah. I can't see how many times we've, you know, maybe sailed up onto a mooring at Leverick or maybe. uh uh, and the bite or something like that, and and then we go ashore for dinner, and somebody comes up and said, "I watched your boats come in,
2: right? You know, right.
1: nicely, something like that, you know." And then they feel good about it, you know. I yeah. feel good about it. So, uh, so I don't know. I guess it's a little different.
0: One of the differences too is in the, the newer generations of catamarans. There's so much windage. You know, the the uh, cabin tops are high. The um everything is is elevated. It's like having extra sail uh, all around the boat. You know, the boat is always getting more deeply affected by the wind than, for example, your boat or those earlier um, uh, leopards, which were quite low, had a low profile, and, you know, no elevated steering position or anything like that.
1: That's absolutely true. I mean, she's a sailboat. And I can't tell you that, I mean, I can't tell you how many times at the end of a, of a, you know of a class for somebody that's actually thinking of buying a boat. And of course, that becomes a subject of discussion. You know, what are things you would look for? What are you know what how do you how do you figure out what boat you want to get? And of course, they always come in with the presupposition of some of the newest ones because that's what they're reading about. And by the end of the week, it's very often they're kind of saying, you know, something. I think I'm going to get an older boat. Uh, and and because they've learned. Uh, that, that it is nice to have a boat that will sail. And you are absolutely correct. So many of the newer ones just won't. They'll make a lot of these things much more difficult.
0: Well, they're more and more designed for entertaining, for sitting around at the end of your little, little bit of sailing that you've done and during the day. You can sit around at high up on the you know those um, lagoons. Some of the big lagoons have got these massive thrones you know, 20 feet in the air, whatever, and um, which is great, it's wonderful, but it's a lot of a uh, lot of windage.
1: Yeah, and the boat is designed. The boat is designed around the accommodation, rather than the accommodation put inside yeah. a boat. And exactly. of course, there's a reason for that. That's really the market. You know, it it it's uh, uh, a lot of the people that come and charter a catamaran. Um, you know, they're not really that. Uh, that keen on the sailing part of it anyway. And that's kind of what what, it's unfortunate because when you look at the private owner uh, that's looking at the newest boat, um, I mean, obviously, I haven't been out and sailed on all of them or maybe even that many of them. uh, uh, But kind of looking at it, I sort of think to myself, they're not all that many, many choices for, uh, for that kind of person. So it's a little bit difficult, you know, and then if they come into it with the notion that the thing can't sail very well to begin with, so why bother? They never remember to sail. Mm, mm. The boat, yeah. and you look at things. You look, for example, the, the design of boats ebbs and flows over the years. It's amazing how we come back to things that we that were there a long time ago. I mean, you look at the old J boats; those were fractional rigs. A lot of those those uh, older boats were. And then you got into the 60s, you know, in the 70s and 80s, and we were all sailing masthead rigs with with kind of blade mains. And um, then I remember, I think the first company to really embrace going back to a fractional rig was J boats. I'm not talking about the big old J's. I'm talking about yeah. J 24 J whatever. Yeah. And I remember in their literature, they would say one of the great advantages of this is that you can sail under main alone. So you can right there in their advertising, you can sail, you, you can do the kinds of things I'm doing under main alone. Right. And I can, looked at that and thought, that's preposterous. Of course you can't do that, you know. And I kind of put it in the back of my mind, continued to sail all my masthead uh, masthead boats. And uh, uh, But then, you know, with the era of the catamaran and a lot of the monohull, we've been in an era of fractional rigs with big mains, main-driven mm-hmm. boat, not driven boat. But, of mm-hmm. course, it was always great when you had a driv- jib-driven boat, uh, all you had to do was unroll the jib and you were sailing. And the jib was big enough that if you had some wind, you could sail under jib alone. We've all done that a million times. And now, in the last few years, you see Lagoon kind of, you know, the, the, the circle has been, it's gone right around the circle to where they've now moved their masts back. And they market it as some sort of a, you know, some kind of a big advantage um, in speed. You know, this is the latest design rather than this is the way we did it 30 years ago. Um, and they have a smaller main, and they have a bigger jib that's mm. on a roller. And it's not a masthead jib, but it's a big jib. And I think what's really happened is is they've just said, how can we make this boat easier for the charter to sail? Let's just give him a jib, a big jib, that he can unroll and get going.
0: And that's also um, accommodating the, the fact that most people – comfortable sailing uh, on the beam or 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 downwind rather than uh, upwind so throw out the the big sail and away you go you know
1: exactly and it fits the market and uh and so they make those boats but that doesn't mean that it's the best way to design a boat
0: but it's it's interesting to see the number of you know there's all these people on youtube now that are sailing around the world and Documenting their trips you know and, and so many of them are doing them on cats and on on the sort of type of cat that we've just been talking about you know the ones that are charter cats really with all their windage and and their flimsy construction um and away they go charging around it's a little worrisome you know i mean yeah. yeah i mean it's it's uh
1: Charging around is the right right word for it, and more power to them. Um, but I will say this, and and I you know I don't want to I don't want to knock what anybody does, but you know it's it's uh, the world has changed since you and I grew up in in terms of social media, in terms of people wanting to show everybody what they're doing, and in terms of people wanting to watch what everybody does. You know, mm-hmm. here we're gonna have you know we're gonna give birth, and we're gonna have the delivery on. YouTube. I mean, you know, it, 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 who would have ever <laughs> thought of doing something? like that? And so in, in the vast majority of these cases, I hate to say it, it's the blind leading the blind.
2: Mm.
1: Because what they're really doing is they're starting out kind of saying, look, here we are, we're in our jobs, and we decided to quit our jobs and go buy a boat and sail around the world and do this, that, and the other. And it's, it is... it is, I. I I have a few of them that I actually enjoy watching, and uh, and, and I find it entertaining. Um, it's also sometimes entertaining when you look at the comments, and some of the people that are that are uh, reading it will make some very very apt comments about you know sail trim or seamanship or why didn't you do it this way or it's easier to do it that way. Uh, but that does not seem to daunt these people. They're perfectly happy to say, look, I'm going to learn something from nothing um wind up achieving something fairly significant make all the mistakes in the world make a fool of myself and you know what i'm inviting you along the way to me that's yeah. kind of a, that's a sort of an odd thing but that seems how much of it is this nowadays and that's how many of them are
2: mm-hmm. um
1: and, and uh, of course there's usually a pretty girl involved in some nice scenery and and so it becomes a fun thing to watch from a travelogue point of view like i say i've got two or three. Uh, that I enjoy watching, and there's one, there's one uh, that I really enjoyed watching because they actually both of the both of the people had worked on a Megia. Uh so they 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 weren't total beginners. They didn't know too much about sailing, but they weren't total beginners. And uh, they went about it in a good way. They spent very little money. They're on a monohull, and they've really, I think they've. We've watched them not go from zero. They were already sort of happy, right. and they've gotten pretty good. And, and they're nice personalities. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm constantly on the brink of my own, of doing my own thing, which is, which will be, look, here's how you really want to do it. And right. uh, maybe nobody will be interested in that. I
0: don't know. So just because I've been following, uh, you, you remember Lynn and Larry Party? Great, yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: Just, right.
0: I've been following uh, Lynn on uh, Facebook a lot lately. And uh-huh. um, she's been, because Larry just passed away a few months ago, a couple of months ago. And right. um, she's been, uh, you know, showing all these photographs of, the, you know, the 28 foot engineless uh, cutter, you know, charging around the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, one of the things that they used to say was that the, 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 the further you go off the beaten track sailing, you know, the smaller the boats get. You know, until you you sort of in, in some little atoll somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and they're, they're all twenty-five foot, thirty-foot boats. You know, and um,
1: true, yeah, or was very true. What yeah, is she had a wonderful expression. She said, "You want to make," or maybe came from Larry, came from them. Said, "You want to make your boat unstoppable,"
2: right.
1: and they defined it as. If something went wrong, you always had a way around it, and so that you didn't wind up getting stuck someplace for months because you had to fix something. The idea was that you made your boat whether where you could plan where you were going to fix it. Which, wow. when you stop and think about it, it's a wonderful idea. And I use that on my monohull. It was very much that way. You know, if this didn't work, then that would work. If this didn't work, that would work. Mm. Now the, the catamarans that we sail. Um, uh, they can be quite stoppable, and uh, of course the crews are are maybe not as resourceful as Lynn and Larry. Also, so uh, <laughs> on out of the window.
0: So when you talk about your monohull, what what what, did, what was your monohull? My monohull was a thirty-three foot Hunter. Okay,
2: it
1: was the original. Uh, original line that they had, designed by Cherubini. It didn't look like Hunter's later looked, which were always kind of unique. It looked very much like a Cal or a, an Ericsson or, a, you know, something along that line.
2: Yeah. and
1: a, An Islander. And in those days, they're, they're, uh, uh, their construction was sometimes very good, sometimes very bad, sometimes in the middle. Mine was in the middle. Um, but I sailed her for six years on San Francisco Bay, and that's rough enough that, that I pretty much broke everything that was not up to uh, to snuff and then reinforced it. And by the time I left San Francisco Bay, I had a tremendous amount of faith in that. I was very fortunate. Um, somehow, the broker that sold it to me must have known how I was eventually going to use it, which was nothing like what I thought. A very, okay. very good boat, single hand and cruise on, and, and uh, I lived on that boat for 19 years, uh, 18 and
0: a half. Did you take that boat down to Cabo? Absolutely,
1: and okay. uh, I, originally Northern California, then Southern California, then down in Mexico. Yeah, and, and I was actually on the brink of taking her across the Pacific, believe it or not. Uh, and then uh, life changed when I got jetstream.
0: Okay, so you were, this was on the Sea of Cortez.
1: Is that where, is that where it, you were? Mostly Sea of Cortez, some mainland stuff, but I love the Sea of Cortez.
0: So what's what's that like for sailing?
1: <laughs> well, it's one of those places where they say that you know the sailing's not very good except in the winter when it is. Uh, there's the sort of Sea of Cortez version of the reinforced trades, and it's northerly winds that come down from the Great Basin in the U.S. The nortes, and yeah. boy, those are those are those are wicked winds. But uh, um, I used to kind of chuckle about that because I sail most places, and uh, and Lena did a year up in the Sea of Cortez, and we all know they sailed. There. And I eventually came to the conclusion that it's so hot there in the summer that people put up their, their awnings, you know, and I mean, there were very elaborate awnings, you know, a yeah. lot of debate on what color the awning should be and how do you get wind to go through it, because there wouldn't be that much wind. And, um, and then you were going to go for about an hour and a half of, to your next destination, and you were going to have to run your engine to run your refrigerator because that's the kind of refrigerators people had. So you are going to have to run your engine anyway. So if you motored to the next spot, that saved you from taking the awnings down and you got your refrigeration done, and so you motored, and then you eventually bought into the idea that the sailing wasn't very good in the Sea of Cortez because you never sailed. And, uh That was my observation you know I didn't have a very good awning to begin with later on I did so I roasted Uh, my refrigerator was a very very low draw DC refrigerator and I had solar panels and I I basically sailed I had a wonderful time sailing there Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you what I don't think there's one in ten people that would talk about it as a much of a sailing place but um, I always enjoyed light air sailing in fact You know, here we get tons of heavy sailing, and my favorite is light air sailing. And my thought has always been that, you know, it's not hard to make a boat move when you've got a lot of wind.
2: Right. But
1: you have little wind, then um, it's an art. And sailing is one of those things that I think the more you do, the better you become, but the harder it is.
2: Yes. (laughs) That's true.
1: Because you're trying to do a little of this and a little of that, and it becomes very fun, very difficult, very absorbing, um, but great fun, and you get fairly
2: decent at it.
0: I think the rap that I'd heard about the, uh, the Baja California, really, was that because of the peninsula on one side and uh, the um, mainland on the other, it was just fluky wind all the time. That's what I, I think.
1: Well, it's very, very fluky if you keep your awnings up. The wind in the center, there's always pretty good wind in the center.
2: Okay. And,
1: uh, you know, and, and down the coast, you'd have your flat days. And, I mean, flat in the city of Cortez is like mirror flat. But you would have plenty of days with, you know, 8 to 10 knots, 8 to 12 knots.
0: Okay. 12 knots, 12 that's
1: usable. Uh, it's usable. Again, you have, to, you have to have a boat that sails well. And you have to enjoy sailing. And I think that's yeah. kind of the difference. You know, so if you're just thinking something is 10 miles away, so I can motor it in an hour and a half or two hours, um, and I would prefer to do that rather than sail for free, then you're not gonna you're not gonna sail much. The other thing is, is yeah. that the Sea of Cortez is, is one of those sort of um, kind of a, a, a training ground. If you're on the West Coast and you're going to go cruise, the first place you cruise is the Sea of Cortez, right,
2: right. and
1: you go wherever you go um, or some people stick around it they love it so much I loved it so much mm-hmm. I'd love Now, um, yeah,
0: did you did you run a marina there or something
1: I was the manager for four and a half years at couple marina yeah, exactly marina okay.
0: Capo.
1: the thing is is that they they uh, a lot of the people when they get down there their boats are not optimized yet maybe they're not optimized their boats overweight you know they're everybody's kind of wondering how this cruising thing goes you know, and so people are taking very, very baby steps. So they're not really paying much attention to their sailing. But right. uh, you, you, I, well, I'll tell you the last trip I did on 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 my other boat on casual water. Remember, I told you that she she was not stoppable, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. the uh, the uh, cutlass bearing went out, and we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to go, and we just sailed it. And this was right in the center. Summer, when you're not supposed to be able to sail, we sail on to anchors. This is me and Marsha on and yeah. off anchors. We did this, we did that. You know, we would stop an anchor if there was no wind. We had a wonderful time.
2: And yeah. I eventually
1: turned the engines on for the last minute to get it in the berth in San Carlos. <laughs> planking away on its, on its cut was very, it was completely mm-hmm. shot. You know, I turned on the engine and we went in and turned the engine off. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the common thing is that it's not much of a sailing place, but I think it actually can be better than, than uh, most people make it. And it's wonderful in every other regard.
0: Right. So where else have you sailed that um, I'm not aware of?
1: Well, um, you know, I went decades without thinking about sailing. Um, it. Uh, I learned to sail originally, believe it or not, in the UK. And huh. uh, on the Ald River, A-L-D-E. We used to, my mother was English, uh, and we used to go to England every other year. We were very lucky that it would be, you remember, I grew up all over the world, and it was always on our way to the States on what was called home leave. So we would right. stop and we, would, we would stop in the U.K., and that's where I learned to sail, and I enjoyed sailing. And then, of course, my life was golf, um, and uh, I remember somebody saying they were going to go sailing, and uh, and I thought to myself, what a stupid thing to do. I mean, you know, it's a lot of work and you're not even going anywhere and you're not even sure if you're going to get to where it is that you don't even know that you're going and it's going to take you all afternoon. Why would you not be playing golf instead? And uh, and that's pretty much how I spent my time. And it was only when I moved to California and a friend of mine who was a very keen sailor um, on the East Coast, he had a... He had a relative that lived in the San Francisco Bay Area that lived uh, aboard, and uh, he knew how hard it was to get housing in in, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. I didn't. I naively thought, "Oh, I'll just go and I'll get an apartment like I, you know, have in Maryland." Um, and he just threw out the idea. said, "Tim, why don't you live on a boat?" And I've made a few of the most important decisions in my life retrospectively. I mean, retrospectively. In about 30 seconds, and that was one. <laughs> yeah, yeah I thought. wow, what a great idea! I'll live on a boat. And then people yes. would ask where I was going to live. I'm still in Maryland. I'd say, I'm going to live on a boat. They looked at me like I was nuts. I never realized quite how smart they were, but um, that's kind of where it all started. And, and I'd never been on anything other than a you know an open boat, and so I would now, when I would see boats, I'd look at them and I think, I wonder what's inside there, you know, where's the. Where's the bathroom? Where do they cook? Where do they do all these kinds of things? When I got to, to the Bay Area, I I got pretty uh, serious about looking for a boat, and I was fortunate. I stumbled into, into the, uh, the 33 foot 100. Um, and, uh, you know, it went from there. And uh, the, the smartest thing I did, and I would say this to any novice sailor, is that there's nothing better than time on the water. And as a teacher, and you're a teacher, we both know that lessons are important, and it's a great way to learn the fundamentals and, and maybe some wrinkles, but but you have to get out and practice it, or it's all uh, it's all for naught. And I made a rule that I went out, no matter how busy I was, and in the season, I was very busy, um, but I would go out, rain or shine, one day a week, I would take the boat out.
2: Okay. And...
1: Uh, Sometimes I took it out for an hour. You know, sometimes my my filling my job was to go out and motor around for an hour and come back in. But still making the boat, getting out on the boat. Sometimes I'd be sailing all afternoon or all day or whatever. And you know something? If you knock off 52 sailing days a year, you actually are getting quite a bit of time on the water. And that's what I did. And I kept the boat where it was not. You know, I didn't have bicycles and plants on the deck like a lot of liverboards. She was always ready to go, and off I went. So so I sailed all up and down the, the, the west coast, uh, uh, California and Mexico. Uh, I've sailed in Hawaii. I've sailed in, um, well, a good bit of up and down the east coast of the U.S., Chesapeake Bay, a good bit there. Um, I did sail some, some in Thailand, the uh, Caribbean. You know, it's not that exotic.
0: So, now, when you, when you say you're a, you're a professional golfer, were you, did you play on the tour or, or something something similar? Were you a competitive golfer? Uh,
1: I was a competitive golfer. My ambition was to play the tour. Um, in retrospect, I never worked hard at it enough. Um, and uh, I played in golf is called the mini tours, which is kind of like minor league baseball. Oh. Um, and I played pretty much right up to the level of, 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 of the tour, just below it. And I and I played fairly well. I won a couple of tournaments, not big tournaments, but I won some tournaments. Um, I, was, I had the misfortune to be quite good without trying hard. And <laughs> I never really realized that. Um, and so I excused my not trying as hard as I should. I rather inadvertently... Discovered that I was a pretty good teacher, and Mm -hmm. uh, and it was in that part of the game that I really made my mark, and I went on to be the reason I was in the San Francisco Bay Area was I was the golf coach at Stanford University, and then I was the director of golf at a fairly big golf school, so I was in golf, you know, so on and so forth. And Mm -hmm. and uh, the interesting thing is is that when I was the golf coach at Stanford, um, I was working with all my players, and they were good players, so. I was contributing to their game because I was I, I got that job because I had taught some pretty good players. I, I was I was a good teacher for good players. You know, There are different kinds of players and different kinds of teachers. I'm not the greatest teacher in the world for a beginner, but I'm pretty good with, with expert players, with elite players. But the interesting thing is, is now I had the chance to see how they went about things and understand that all these kids that came to Stanford that were elite players that I'm coaching, I mean, you know, they had gotten to Stanford without any input from me. They had learned, you know, at the, at the hands of other teachers and so forth, and they had really good work habits. Mm. And all of a sudden, I saw what it took to be a really good player. It was kind of funny because, in some ways, I learned as much from them as they learned from me. And uh, I had two U.S. junior champions, a junior world champion, you know, those kind of kids. And when I saw the effort that they put in, Um, You know, I thought to myself, you actually aren't any better than I was, but you go about it in a completely different way. And that kind of opened my eyes to how people do things really well. And and eventually, I think that improved my own teaching because I really, Mm. you know, I I had experienced it, unfortunately, not firsthand. But (laughs) in the meantime, I started sailing and eventually I succumbed to that addiction.
0: And it is an addiction, that's for sure.
1: It is. Well, actually, so is golf. Um, yeah. but mm. uh, people always used to say yeah, you never see somebody that plays golf and sales because they're both incredibly time-consuming and not cheap and mm. I always had the good fortune that one or other of them I was making my living at so uh, so I, I only really always would have one hot hobby at a time one was my profession, the other was the hobby right. uh, so uh, I was pretty lucky that
0: way So now you're thinking of downsizing from your boat From uh, Jetstream.
1: Yes. And uh, I will deeply regret separation from my current steed. You know, I've been on Jetstream now for 16 years uh, and lived on her that whole time and learned her. And um, I've been fortunate in that I've been able to do with her pretty much whatever I wanted to do. So people have said you wear that boat. And uh, that's not too far off. And I've been very lucky. She's a very good boat. And I'm now going to another boat, smaller, uh, that is also supposed to be a very good boat. And obviously, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, you know, I'm making this change voluntarily. I am looking forward to learning how she sails. But I'm hoping she sails as well as Jetstream.
0: So you've you've, uh, made that decision?
1: Actually, over this past weekend, I made an offer and it was accepted.
0: Oh, well, congratulations! So now you have to um, find a new home for for Jetstream.
1: And, uh, my understanding is that for reasons that, uh, well, I do understand them, but that boats, Jetstream size, are a fairly hot commodities these days, along with RVs and vacation homes, because mm. it's, uh, families feel they can get their recreation, in, you know, while kind of staying isolated. And mm. then there are people that are retiring early and COVID is the time to do that so apparently boats like jetstream are uh, do pretty well that re- remains to be seen if somebody is going to be open-minded about an older boat but she's in superb shape you know I just painted her from the tow rails up uh, a year ago so you know she looks pretty much like a, a new boat and, uh, and it's very you know refit a lot of very new gear she'll make somebody very happy she'll outsail the new boats
0: Well, I must say, you're a fastidious uh, owner and master of your vessel. You know, I've often seen, I remember seeing, you know, after after a rain shower or something, you'd be out there mopping up and Mm -hmm. (laughs) getting every little drop of, uh, especially in the summer when in the Caribbean there's all that dust in the air. You're very careful on, you know, keeping it clean and keeping it in perfect tip-top condition. That's for sure.
1: Well, the rain used to always find the bits of dirt you didn't get, and then uh, those all would come down and accumulate in places that became well known to me. So, uh, but it was kind of funny. I, I uh, people would sort of kid me because I used to rinse Jetstream just about every day. Uh, but the funny thing was, I could do it. You know, I got to where I could do it in maybe 25 gallons, something like that. It wasn't It wasn't a huge amount of water for the size of the boat. You know, you learn the sequence of what to wash first, and then that water ran down to someplace else. But I found if I went three or four days and I didn't rinse it, um, it became a soap wash. And I yeah. used as much, of as much water in that, that wash as I would have done in all the days of rinsing. So yeah. uh, it was not uh, wasteful. Now, with the, with the all-grip finish, you know, that... that uh, dirt just washes off that so easily.
0: So when are you taking possession of this um, of your PDQ?
1: Well, wouldn't that be nice to know? Um, okay. You know, this day where you're never sure when you're gonna hmm. be in or out of places, but I I think a reasonable goal would be uh, to you know let's say the mid to late October, partly because of you know the hurricane season weather and and, and part because it will take that long to sort of wrap things up Um, and there are one or two uh, projects I want to do on Jetstream that I want to do here and um, meanwhile I will you know I'll advertise it before I leave Um, and for some boats there are people lining up maybe I'll I'll already have a potential buyer or two and then I'll take them to the states and you know move what goes on to the new boat onto the new boat and Jetstream will be ready to go now that that's entirely possible that somebody will want a buyer while before I leave. Amazingly, people are buying boats in the BVI site. They're doing it with, you know, the surveyor and the broker together with a camera, taking very good pictures and the broker looking very carefully at it and, and the, the uh, buyers at the other end and they're, uh, you know, and they're asking questions and they're taking pictures and stuff like that. And, uh, and they're buying them and they're either leaving them here until they can get them out or they can be delivered from here, they can be taken to the state. That seemed to me to be an incredibly remarkable thing that somebody would actually do that. And then I looked in the mirror and realized that's what I just did. Except <laughs> you know, I would say I've been very, very careful. And and, and you know, the the, the seller was, a, was a, uh, is a a very nice guy who was willing to put up with my endless stream of questions, and I felt good about it. So mm. I just think it's surprising. Maybe somebody will want to do that
2: with jetstream.
0: Okay, friends that's it for today uh thank you for listening if you want to check us out on the web we're at smarter charter guides that's guide got an s on the end dot com or facebook
2: This podcast is sponsored by Caribbean Sailing Coach. Based in the British Virgin Islands, they offer private lessons ranging from a one-day docking clinic on your own boat to a week-long island hopping charter on a monohull or catamaran of your choice. So whether you plan to sail halfway around the world or just reduce your anxiety when backing into a slip, they can help. Go to CaribbeanSailingCoach.com to find out more.